If you take a woman who has never, ever had oestrogen, and there are some syndromes where there is no oestrogen, they don't get hot flushing. It's women who've had oestrogen. And so the body becomes oestrogen, and it's when the oestrogen drops and, and goes up and goes up and down uh, that the symptoms occur. And so it's a sort of instability. Welcome to the Metagenics Institute podcast, a place where you can hear from leading experts in health and wellness, from scientists and researchers to internationally recognized clinicians. Enjoy this insightful conversation with host Nathan Rose. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Metagenics Institute podcast. I'm your host, Nathan Rose. And I'm pleased today to be joined by Professor Marianne Lumston, all the way from London. Good morning, Marianne. Good morning. Thanks for joining me. So today we're here to talk about uh, menopause. You've been working in this space for a long period of time, both in academia and now, is it more sort of with a non-profit organization? So can you describe yeah, your, your history and interest in menopause and, and how you've transitioned now to this um, organization? Yes, well, currently I am the CEO of the International Federation of Gynecologists and Obstetricians, which is a federation of national societies of obstetrics and gynecology, uh, representing women's health across the life course. And up until recently, the focus has been mainly on reproductive age women and younger women, but now uh, we're moving uh, much of the activity to older women's health. And I've really enjoyed doing that because prior to joining FIGO, I was a professor of gynecology and medical education and a consultant at the University of Glasgow for a long time. And prior to that was in the University of Edinburgh and was involved in setting up the first menopause clinic in Edinburgh. Uh, in I think it was 1989, something uh-huh. like that, and then continued when I went to Glasgow, where we had a big menopause service over the years. And uh, so my involvement has gone on for a long time, clinically and academically. Right. And one thing that I noticed that it's obvious now, when you point out one of your presentations, you, you highlight that today, thankfully, with uh, life expectancy in, in the country Absolutely. we live in, that uh, many women can spend more of the time in the postmenopausal phase than the reproductive phase. Um, so, and but maybe culture and so forth. It feels like it was sort of a bit of a t- taboo topic, or was somewhat neglected over the years. Um, can you sort of describe the landscape and maybe the shifting landscape around this with women, with as we you know more women are also in the older population. Yes. Absolutely. I mean, the lifespan is going up in every country around the world with the exception of one or two of the sub-Saharan Africa countries. But uh, as you say, Nathan, it means that uh, many women will spend 30, 40, maybe more years in the postmenopause, And so they need to be well, and we need to look after their health and value the contribution they can make to society. And this is really what it's all about. It doesn't 
you know, a lot of it uh, has been over-medicalized and hormone-focused in the past. Now we're moving to a much broader vision of different ways of helping people through the menopause, starting with making them aware of what it is. And that every woman who lives long enough will go through the menopause. It's not a pathology. It's something natural stage of life. And women choose different options to help them do that. And then there are impl implications for health in later life, which are of fundamental importance. Yeah. And I want to really revisit that idea that it has been maybe medicalized. Um, not that, and we can touch upon our hormone replacement therapy, but uh, yeah, uh, that it's been medicalized to a degree and you need this support. Um, but I want to, yeah, explore where we were women or are women supposed to go through a decline in hormones? So yeah, you, you wrote a really interesting paper that touched upon like the evolutionary sort of theory of menopause and something that's fascinated me. Can you describe this theory that perhaps, yeah, where women are designed to have this sort of long post-reproductive phase? Yeah, it's, it is really interesting, I have to say, because a overwhelming majority of animals when they cease to reproduce, they die. They reach the end of their natural lifespan, i.e. their purpose on Earth is to reproduce. Now, there is another species, the orca whale, mm. the killer, killer whale, about which there's some fascinating theories that the post-menopausal whales, because they do have a long post-menopause where they cease to reproduce, but the postmenopausal whales lead the pod of whales and they can track them quite readily because of their markings. And they lead the pod and they're very good at identifying the food sources. So they help the survival. And uh, this has led to rather less dramatic theories in women that they're involved in caring for grandchildren, often grandparents all over the world are involved in caring and babysitting and looking after their grandchildren. And the other rather less attractive idea, I think, is the younger model idea of um, men wanting to have a young mate because problems go up with late pregnancy. And then obviously when people are post-menopause, they don't naturally um, uh, reproduce. But it may just be chance, but there there's a lot of interest in why menopause occurs in women. Yeah. And, and I think it may well be due to ongoing intellectual capacity and contribution to society. Yeah. It's a relatively new thing in evolutionary terms. Right, right. Uh, I was fascinated, but I think it was um, Dr. Herman Ponzo who we had on the podcast here, he spent some time with in Tanzania and he's looked at the uh, metabolic rate and activity of uh, this uh, population and, and noted that it was the often the postmenopausal women who gather the most calories out of all the tribe consistently like sometimes men would go and hunt and yes. bring back some game but you know, uh, often they're very unsuccessful and it was the the postmenopausal women who didn't have to be you know um, nursing a child and so forth that they were very active and um, productive um, mm. so I suppose that yeah, my question is, um, again, like this to me highlights that, yes, you can be quite um, active and productive in society, 
Um, is that part of that sort of grandmother hypothesis that they're able to, you know, supply calories to the to the children who take 20, 20 or more years or probably longer now um, to, uh, you know, become functional and fly the coop and so forth? <laughs> yes, I I think, I mean, it's difficult to be precise. Yes. The, the gathering, there are hunter-gatherer populations which are go back uh, a long time. They they are very they're more primitive in inverted commas than uh, the Western societies, and this is this has been very clearly documented. Um, but I think that uh, there is a natural caring role. But it, women are still very productive during menopause and postmenopause, caring apart. They also do contribute socially and economically uh, yeah. to the society as a whole. And uh, this shouldn't, I think, be dismissed. And in some of the Asian communities, the uh, grandmother is the mate, you know, is the matriarch. Yeah. Is yeah. in charge, runs the family uh, to certainly in all the home-based aspects. Yeah. All right, well, let's transition, pardon the pun, to the more sort of biological mechanisms that occur during menopause. Um, there again, there's a bit of a, a dogma that the women run out of eggs um, at each ovulation, but as I understand, it's probably more of a quality control concept that the, the body's like more eggs sort of get picked off, do they, than, than sort of used? What well, is the hallmark of um, menopause? <laughs> well, the menopause does, you're partly right. Um, the maximum number of eggs in the ovary actually occurs in utero when the baby's still inside the womb. And then it's sort of downhill then onwards. And each month during the reproductive cycle, a number of eggs develop, but only one or usually two maximum yes. will go on to ovulate and potentially lead to um, a pregnancy. As a woman gets older, there is more instability in these eggs and there are more abnormal eggs. Right. And so the incidence of abnormal fetuses go up. Mm -hmm. And um, this is why uh, fertility is sort of maximum in the 30s. And it is far more difficult for women to become pregnant because quite often these abnormal uh, oocytes won't fertilize when intercourse steps takes place. So the fertility rate drops quite dramatically. And there are hormone changes associated with that. Uh, not so much just a decline in estrogen. Yeah. But there is tremendous variability in, in many of the hormones, estrogen, progesterone, and the hormones from the pituitary gland just below the brain that control it all. So, uh, it's complicated, yes. but it, it 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 is its variability that is the problem. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so I'm really curious in this variability because if we presume that obviously menopause um, isn't a pathology, the decline in hormones, um, women should have a you know ideally a long post reproductive life that's um, productive and so forth. Why do they get all these symptoms and things like? Um, but yeah, is that natural to have, or I don't want to say natural, but it's obviously common, but does it have to happen? Um, I understand this transition. Is it the fluctuation or it's the 
absolute level? What's yeah? What's so the... it's a fluctuation, fluctuation. Right, right. And if you take um, a woman, a woman who has never ever had estrogen, and there are some syndromes where yes, there is no estrogen, they don't get hot flushing. It's yeah. women who've had estrogen. So the body becomes used right. to estrogen, and it's when the estrogen drops and, and goes up and goes up and down uh, that the symptoms occur. And so it's a sort of instability, um, and it's principally driven by estrogen. Vasomotor, the vasomotor symptoms, known as hot flushing more commonly, occur probably, depending on the community, in maybe up to 40% reasonably seriously, you know, enough to cause bother, which is an Americanism for, <laughs> you know, defining how severe things are, but it's a useful one. Do they, are they bothersome? <laughs> and probably around 40, you know, half women have bothersome symptoms and hot flushing in the West is the commonest. It is not in some of Asian society where it does occur. It can be really bad, yeah. but it's less, less common, much less common. So uh, it's 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 an interesting thing. But it in the past there was worry because people didn't understand why they were getting it. Most women, it will only last a year or two. I say only, <laughs> uh, but in some. It lasts for years and years and years. And right. those are the ones who come to the clinics, they really, they just can't cope anymore and they need help. And there are lots of ways of helping. Yeah. Um, yeah. All so, sorts of different types of, of, of yeah. therapies. Um, which we'll get into in a moment. You mentioned there the Asian countries. Did you say, that we implying that it's less bothersome for, even though they do experience the flushes? It's a difficult one to answer. <laughs> um, when I first started working in this area, people would say Japanese women don't get hot flushing. And then you discover that their language does not readily lend itself to discussions of hot flushing because the words are not there. And when uh, this was remedied, um, it, it it became apparent that some women do get bad hot flushes, right, but right. less it appears from the various studies that have been done that less do than in uh, and there are one or two quite good recent studies looking at um, different ethnicities, different yeah. uh, countries. Yes. So now to the um, sort of mechanism of hot flushes this concept of the the thermo neutral zone as i understand it's like your um your you, because women are actually aren't um physically or by temperature hotter it's just their perception or their their bandwidth decreases is that right uh, it's, it's, it's... Uh, well that's a lovely theory and i think <laughs> it's a very good very good way of describing it that you your reaction to both heat and cold happens very quickly. Whereas when you're younger, you can get either hotter or colder right. without really noticing anything very much, particularly hotter. Um, so if a menopausal woman just experiences a small increase in outside temperature, for example, or uh, becomes anxious or other precipitating factors, 
they will have a flush. And it's a heat loss thing. It's like right. playing squash, you know, where yeah. the, the, the blood vessels of the skin expand and to lose heat. Yes, yes. And um, uh, and pe some people will flush red, which they find excruciatingly embarrassing. Yes. Um, and get very distressed by it. So it's it's you react to heat much quicker, and also often to cold. You know. Right. I didn't know that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, it's no reason you just go away and put on another jersey, but uh, yeah. Uh, if so, I tritely. But um, it uh, it it's it is a your ther a girlfriend said to me your thermoregulation will never be the same again, and it's right. It's right. Okay, right. Are there other facts outside of hormones? If yeah, we look at that, it's inevitable the hormones are going to decline and probably in a sort of a a random and um, fluctuating mm -hmm. manner. I've seen things like um, is it like autonomic nervous system tone and maybe even um, body fat levels, which ironically, um, if you have more fat, you may um, create more estrogen in the fat cells, which, you, you know, theoretically you think maybe that would sort of delay um, menopause or hot flushes, but I think excessive fat mass, is it because of the inflammation? What are the other factors that could sort of um, exacerbate hot flushes? Well, I think this is a subject of another podcast. <laughs> Um, basically, uh, obesity is often said because of estrogen production from fat, don't get flushing. In my experience, women who are very overweight often sweat, the same as men who are overweight. Yeah. And it's because you're wearing an overcoat yeah. if you're very overweight. Um, and so... Uh, the the it is it, it is i i don't believe that it's vastly decreased and we did try and do some studies with um looking at the way blood vessels react in um women who are overweight but it was difficult to get anything conclusive out of okay. it I have to say. okay and the uh, autonomic nervous system might was this was autonomic it... nervous system anxiety if you're right. thinking of that yeah. uh, which would be one way of works through the autonomic nervous system right. and will will make uh, flushing much much worse okay inevitably you know yeah yeah anybody may flush when anxious but yeah. in in a menopausal woman this can get out of control so in the another way of approaching what are some of the non-hormonal strategies that have, have been proven to reduce severity or incidence of hot flushes lots, yeah. lots <laughs> of lots of non-hormonal there are of course just to get them out of the way, if you like, drugs. Yes. Uh, um, the antidepressants, the SSRIs, yeah, right. would be really effective, actually. But <laughs> they have side effects of their own, yes. of course. And then others that are just taken at night that have a mildly sedative gabapentin that would be taken just at night. Um, and others which are used a bit. But I think more widely used now are the behavioral uh, options such as CBT, cognitive behavior therapy, which has been proven to be really quite effective. And there are some new drugs uh, on the market 
which may change things completely. They're still in the trial phase, but they work through a completely different mechanism, completely different. Uh, They're not hormonal. And I was involved in uh, the early studies of one of them. And um, they looked really quite promising. Interesting. And what's the the mechanism? Well, they the um, hormone release from the little gland in the head, the pituitary yep. gland, is controlled by um, uh, factors coming from the hypothalamus in the brain. Right. Yes. And these affect uh, their their the kispeptin pathways, which um, control the release of these hormones. Okay. And they're used in a lot of different areas of reproduction, and it's a growing thing. Yeah. But they know what clinical trials are like. Yes. Um, And um, so uh, this will take some time. It's very promising, very exciting. So sort of more upstream... Yeah. Um, And uh, there are, of course, herbal preparations that a lot of people swear by. Yep. Yep. Evidence, being an evidence based person, um, evidence is not desperately strong. But (laughs) I think, and this is going to, it's not meant to sound cynical in any way at all. When you do a clinical trial, 30% of the women on placebo will get better. Mm hmm. Now, it may be that the herbal preparations are not that much better than placebo, but it means they work in quite a lot of women. Yeah, and yeah, I used to say to my patients who'd say, I'm taking whatever, you know, it works. Is that all right? And I'd say, yes, of course it is, you know, if it works yeah. and it's not doing any harm. Yeah. And you take yeah. it as directed because I can't tell you <laughs> what to take. <laughs> um, then I was very happy for them. Yep, makes sense. Yeah, with um, with uh, hormonal replacement therapy, I haven't looked at the data much or for a long time. Um, do they just delay the inevitable? Like, will do women like do they get hot flushes? You know, when they're sixty, when they discontinue, or um, does it help them transition? It's a very good question. Um. When I chaired the NICE guideline in uh, about six years ago, we did look at this. There was not a lot of uh, evidence to support, but the view is if you stop HRT slowly, you get less symptoms than if it if you uh, stop very quickly. Of course. And I think there's there's logic behind this. And so what we would say is, yes, you might get some symptoms, most women do not find them as bad as they did in the natural menopause. And that may be because it's much more controlled yeah. um, and to stop it slowly. Okay. And it's really when people stop very suddenly, which under some circumstances they have to, that they really notice it. Okay. Yep. Fair enough. All right. So, yeah, often our practitioners uh, mention that their patients do, that the, the, the challenges they face in menopause are the vasomotor symptoms, but also other sort of neurological symptoms, um, brain fog, mood changes, cognition. Again, is it a similar story? What um, I heard the phrase like the brain needs to sort of recalibrate to the declining estrogen. What's the sort of uh, physiology that's going on that explains that? Or actually, it's probably a good time to um, stop and 
look at the sort of bigger picture. I, I'm curious on that sort of biopsychosocial model that I think you, you put it in one of your papers that's a sandwich generation where just a lot of stuff is going on. You know, kids could be, you know, leaving home or they could have elderly parents that need care. Maybe they're still got a career that they're pursuing and more relationship challenges. Is it this sort of perfect storm that also contributes? I know it's probably hard to tease out, but it, um, I suppose, yeah, can you just touch upon this sort of biopsychosocial bio-psych- and then we can maybe go back to the, the nuts and bolts of the brain? Yeah, I mean, I, I think all uh, that you've said is absolutely correct and it's incredibly complicated. And what I always stress to women is that the HRT is wonderful but it will only treat symptoms that are due to lack of estrogen. Yeah. That's all it will do. So in some cases, there is no doubt that the brain fog, mood changes, etc., will be helped by hormones. There is no doubt. But sometimes, I mean, some people have terrible lives. I um, worked in a rather deprived part of Glasgow, and the difficulties some of these women were experiencing and I would sit and listen and I think quite often that was as important as any treatment I ever gave them and I could just say well I you know I I can't believe what I'm hearing uh it's just so difficult for you sort of thing um you can try hormones um and it might help some of your symptoms certainly but uh, life is more complicated and women are much more complicated than uh, simply um, hormones. But hormones can help, yes. Yeah, yeah. Um, well said, thank you. And probably similar again to the, the vasomotor symptoms. Is that, do you think, like why um, CBT may have some efficacy? And so, and the second part is, what sort of other things can we consider for like improving sleep? Is there anything specific that uh is important for um perimenopause or around outside of the hrt to help with brain function or sleep issues etc wow um <laughs> i think uh hrt is fantastic it treats uh hot flushing effectively in i would say 85 percent of women and quite often improves sleep and brain fog etc as a result it, there is some uh, evidence which suggests that it also improves sleep, you know, hot flushing apart. So it does do a lot of beneficial things. But lack of sleep is as often caused by anxiety, worrying about what you're doing the next day. Is your plane going to be late? Will you miss that meeting sort of thing? You know, natural worries that we all worry about and worrying about your family and so on um and it won't cure that but it often will go uh, is a means of helping um brain fog i don't understand at all and i'm not the person really to ask about that um but mood changes do seem to be helped okay seem to be helped by stabilizing i think the hormonal environment um and the feeling that uh behavior is uncontrollable so people are behaving in a way that's not natural to them and they can't control it yeah okay 
probably a good time now. You've mentioned some of the benefits of uh, HRT and you've published a, a fair bit on this. Um, I think it's really good how you identify the trade-offs and um, indications and contraindications. I know it's a big topic, but I think the mood, as the pendulum sort of shifted again, like, you know, HRT, it was all um, feared and, and now it feels like it's coming back a little bit. You know, there's like everything, there's nuances and caveats. So I suppose, yeah, high-level overview, can you give the sort of the state, current state of play on uh, hormone replacement therapy? Yeah, I, it, it, I think what I feel very, very strongly about is that anybody advising women on taking HRT need to be really up-to-date with all the evidence and present facts to the women and let them make up their own mind. Um, but because there are one or two risks, but risk means different things to different people. And I cannot determine someone else's um, willingness to take any risk. But the benefits are symptoms that we've just mentioned. It's very, very good. It improves quality of life. Women fe often feel much, much better on HRT. And as a result, they look better and their life you know, things are better in their lives. And so, as I said, the quality of life improves and it will improve uh, not just vasomotor symptoms. A lot of women get joint aches and pains, which is misery. Um, and this can be helped um, uh, by HRT, mood we've mentioned, um, sexual symptoms, particularly vaginal dryness postmenopausally is cured by estrogen. It's uh, uh, very, very beneficial. And so there are many, many benefits. And then there are the general health benefits. There are very good data to suggest that women starting HRT at the time of the menopause will get benefit in terms of heart disease. And it is heart disease that will kill most women. So any benefits in that direction is a good one. And also it's fantastic for bones and people should not underestimate the horrors of osteoporosis, thinning of the bones. Um, and uh, HRT is incredibly effective at maintaining bone density through the menopause and decreasing fracture risk. And the, the studies are very good to show it does that. So the, I, the benefits are very considerable. And I think one of the main benefits is that people feel so well on it. Yeah. And really, it makes a difference. The, there are some risks. There are risks in terms of um, deep vein thrombosis, but that is largely removed by using sticky patches and gels and so on to give the HRT. And it's also not that common. Right, okay. Um, and there is the much publicized uh, increase in risk of breast cancer. Now, this is numerically very small indeed. Um, but as I say, risk means different things to different pe people. So I would normally show a picture uh, to show the sort of increase yes. that's due to HRT. Uh, and say, look, you can see numerically it's so small. But if somebody gets it, it's 100%. So yeah, you, yeah. you, know, you so, either get it or you yeah. don't. 
And so for many, it's worth the risk. Yeah. Okay. So is that sort of the, the like absolute versus relative, like, um, HRT, you know, they could say increases your risk of cancer by 50% because, oh, you know, yeah. one in 1,000 versus two in, two, two in 1,000 sort of thing. Or one in 100,000 versus two in 100,000. Yeah, so okay. it depends on your denominator. And um, there are many factors determining uh, the risk of breast cancer. One of them is nationality. It varies enormously from one, um, one uh, country to another. And people need to try and use their own data where it's available. Uh, it depends on how much people drink. And it's a middle-class thing that women drink wine, and that increases their risk yeah, as much as hormones. That's true, yeah. But yeah, you true. don't get many people giving up alcohol. <laughs> Decrease their breast cancer risk and also being overweight yeah. is as risky or more so than yeah. HRT. So uh, it needs all putting into context. And I do feel that seeing women at the time of the menopause to discuss their health is a great lifestyle opportunity. Often lose weight, um, take more exercise, particularly with the Asian women who I used to see a lot of. They tend to sit around a lot and eat lovely sweet cake. And so um, this was not good for their waistlines. And it's yeah. the waistline, the central fat that matters, yeah. not yes. fat elsewhere. Okay. So, um, uh, it, it, but it's, it has to be a personal decision or very much a decision made between a practitioner, whoever that happens to be, and the woman they're talking to. Yeah. Thanks. The only women, hang on, just, just to add a, a, a rider to that, somebody going through the menopause early and 3% of women go through the menopause before the age of 40, 45, <laughs> they should have HRT. They, okay. I would be much, much yeah. stronger yeah. because their risk of heart disease and also osteoporosis is very much increased, um, as well as, you know, minimal. Well, they won't have fertility if they had a very yeah. failure um, or very occasionally it's not quite complete, so they do conceive. But they need a different sort of care. So the women I'm referring to are women in the natural menopause. Yeah. Okay. Uh, you mentioned uh, weight a couple of times there, and I wouldn't mind yet exploring that now. Uh, there's often, it's noted that women put on weight in and around menopause, uh, and there's a, a belief that their metabolism slows. Um, no doubt there's probably changes in body composition, but it, again, I think it was... Um, Herman Ponzer and a, a whole list of other researchers recently published data showing that uh, metabolism or total energy, daily energy, energy expenditure remains pretty, pretty constant. It tails off a little bit as we get older, but to me, it looks like the um, metabolism doesn't change, but no. it's pretty clear that women do put on weight. So <laughs> what's going on? Any idea what's going on there? <laughs> well, the fat distribution changes. Yeah. And so, although body fat per se doesn't increase that much, it's all central, i.e. it's like may when men put on weight, they get a paunch. 
Yes. And in women, this is the equivalent of getting a paunch. So their waist circumference increases. And any middle-aged woman will say, oh, I know exactly what that means. Because, you know, trousers will be tighter around the waist. And, and this, obviously, there are some women where this doesn't happen because they exercise like mad and so on. Um, we certainly did quite a lot of studies in Glasgow looking at South Asian women and European women. And the metabolism didn't, I'm afraid, really change very much, although we hoped it might. Um, uh, because, you know, a lot of people say, oh, my metabolism has slowed. They, as you age, you do slow down. And I think it's, and this is my personal view, not evidence-based. Yeah. I think some of this is a facet of aging. Yeah. That you get slower uh, and you feel less energetic than you did when you were 25. Sadly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, so, um, no, it's, it's, it's a difficult one. Uh, but uh, weight gain... It, it certainly, if you look at populations as a whole, they they put on weight with age. Yeah, yeah. But uh, there are a lot of factors to that. Yeah. Eating the same and exercising less is one of them. And yes. I'm not talking about extreme old age because yeah. then things change very much. But True. more around, say, 50s, 60s sort of age. Yep. And is it the declining estrogen that um, does it fuel the central adiposity anyway or is it is there the aromatization and testosterone what's the point the there if you look at some of the big longitudinal studies it looks as if it is partly related to estrogen decline but if you give estrogen replacement it does not reverse the central adiposity Probably there are there are the conflicting uh, results on that, but it's I think very few women taking HRT would say that they've reversed the change. Although perhaps it may prevent it happening, I I can't answer that yeah. really. Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, we've explored around this sort of perimenopausal phase. Uh, you've also published a fair bit on on the other side of. Um, the transition for more uh, long-term chronic health issues. Um, dementia seems much more common in women. Um, is that because men die of other things earlier? And um, does that partly account for it? Or, or are they at more risk um, at the same age? And, and does estrogen have any role in dementia? Um, there are a lot of uh, researchers who are very eminent in the field who are convinced that um, it can decrease the likelihood of getting dementia. Uh, the findings are not conclusive. And I think one of the issues is that it's incredibly difficult to assess. And some of the instruments used, you know, the questionnaires, are yes. very, very blunt. Yes. Uh, and uh, it, it, it it's difficult, I understand, to really see, you know, small changes. It may be one of the things that I think is meant to keep dementia away is being active, people staying active longer. This could be working longer or 
just leading an active life. Um, and they may do this more because they're taking HRT. I, you know, I, 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 it's not an area I would pretend to understand. Yes. There's also prevention, then there's cure, which really I think we've not got to grips with, although there are some promising developments, I gather. If it did prevent dementia, it would be massively significant. It really would. I mean, it's yeah. so awful. That's so exactly. So, but yes, I think part of it is that women do live longer than men. Um, and so are more likely to get it for that reason. But I think they are more prone to it. Okay. Yep. Um, and back to the bone, you mentioned a few times, and it might be worth just uh, reiterating uh, the profound effects of loss of bone composition with fragility and falls and so forth. But also, what are there suggestions for women who, for whatever reason, um, don't take HRT? Do they just have to double down on exercise and calcium? What's some of the... No, no, there are other other treatments. There are um, a group that are usually first-line treatment for um, and prevention for osteoporosis, um, which would be uh, the bisphosphonate group. Yes. And they uh, can be given as tablets, which cause terrific gastritis, so people hate them. Um, but, but now there are infusions that are given about every 12 to 18 months. And these are used in some countries for prevention of fracture. And it's, I have to say personally, it's a great relief to see people now moving to prevention. Yeah. Rather than waiting until a fracture occurs and say, oh, oh, somebody's got osteoporosis. We better give them something. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I don't think often people realize the impact on life, apart from the number of women who die within two years of a, a hip fracture because of, well, age partly, but also because of decreased mobility and other factors. Yeah. Yeah. But. 80% will have decreased mobility, yeah. 80%. Wow. And so it, it effectively can ruin people's lives. Yeah. Um. So what is it with estrogens? It, it feels like it What you know, gives one hand, takes away the other. That Do men experience osteoporosis? Obviously, again, they, they haven't been exposed to high levels of estrogen through their life. Is it, the, again, that priming that estrogen does through the reproductive years, that ones that's removed and the bone loses integrity. Um, yeah. It gets thinner. It does yeah. lose integrity. It does get thinner. Men have androgens. Androgens are very yeah. good for bone. Yeah. So men tend to have a much higher bone density anyway. Right. So okay. they are less prone to fractures. Of course, the androgens. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but uh, literally, it is what it says osteoporosis is thinning of the bones. Yeah. And it loses the bridges between different bits of bone. Yeah. Right. Gives it its strength. Yeah. And there, the other thing that happens, which relates back to a previous discussion, is neurological effects and decreased balance, which is something that occurs as people age, both men and women. And it's the decreased balance that will precipitate the fracture. 
it's not just thinning of the bones. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And also decrease muscle strength. So if people could keep their muscle strength up and spend a lot of time trying to stand on one leg, literally, yeah. um, to ma help maintain their balance, um, then this will help fracture risk a lot. Okay. Excellent. All right, I think we've covered some of the big ones. Any other areas, conditions, um, systems in the menopause phase that you wanted to touch upon? Uh, I think probably not at this precise moment. <laughs> probably <laughs> yeah. Nothing else will come to me as I... Yeah, yeah. Uh, I think we've covered that. But I think we've, we've covered Yeah, that. okay, great. Well, just to sort of, um, yeah, wrap up or the takeaways, what's your... Um, oh, actually, probably a better question is, what are you excited about um, in your role? Is it research or is it advocacy? Where do you see the future in, you know, um, I think uh, someone mentioned like, you know, treat it as a victory lap in postmenopause. It's actually many, many laps <laughs> into many menopause. But yeah, what are you excited about in terms of championing this, this aging phase? Um, I think it's recognition of the importance of older women um, and the contribution that they can make and the importance of their health. Uh, this is another, again, another uh, yeah. <laughs> discussion is about inequity in health. And one of the main inequities is gender. Uh, and this happens all over the world, that yeah. women are less often less likely to be treated than men. And I think if we can raise the importance of women we can raise the importance of them being healthy. This doesn't necessarily mean drugs, as you, you know, as you said earlier. Um, but to just get people more focused on the whole of the life course, and that women are not just here to have babies, and then to hand over to somebody else, sort of thing. They're, yeah. They're here for the long, the long haul. Not yeah. Just that quickly. Fantastic. That's great. Well, Marianne, I really appreciate your time um, and your insights. Congratulations on all your work. And yeah, I look forward to, to hearing you uh, champion this phase more in the future. It's, yeah, you're right. It's a really important area, under-recognized, and um, hopefully this is a, yeah, a small part of it. And, uh, yeah. you know, we see a lot more of it. Okay. Well, thank you very much. For useful links and resources, make sure you check out the show notes. The information provided in this episode is for educational purposes only and is not intended to be a substitute for health and medical care. Always consult a healthcare professional for medical advice.